Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this season, we've been working our way through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In the last few podcasts, we've been tracing the story of Abraham as he left behind his life of mimetic rivalry to pursue a new way of living. In the last episode, we considered the rivalry between Abraham's wife, Sarai, and her female foreign slave, Hagar, in Genesis 15 and 16. You may recall that the Lord promises to multiply Hagar's offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord makes a similar promise to Abraham. Let's read on now in Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring afterward. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Up until this point in the podcast, I've been using the term Abraham and Avram somewhat interchangeably, and I can understand that this might have been a bit confusing, so I apologize for that. In this passage, Avram, which means exalted father, has his name changed to Avraham, which means a father of a multitude. Of course, his name change fits the theme of the passage, namely that Abraham will father a great nation. Abraham is told that he will be exceedingly fruitful. We have seen this type of language throughout the book of Genesis. In the first chapter of Genesis, humanity is commanding to be fruitful and multiply. And this command is reiterated to Noah and his sons after the flood in chapter 9. Scholars attribute these passages along with chapter 17 to the same textual tradition, that is, the priestly tradition. I mentioned in an earlier podcast that the book of Genesis is comprised of different sources. For example, while scholars attribute the ordered creation narrative of Genesis 1 to the priestly writer, the creation account of Genesis 2 and 3 is attributed to another tradition referred to as the Yahwist. I mention this now because it helps explain the way this Abraham story is constructed. In the last podcast, we considered Genesis chapter 15, in which the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham. Now in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord makes another covenant with Abraham. Why two covenants? What's the deal here? Because God's covenant or relational promise to Abraham is being presented from two different angles. 
In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord meets Abraham in a very dark place. Through an ancient covenant ritual, the Lord promises unequivocally to liberate and protect Abraham and to give him the object of his desire, to give him descendants and a land to dwell in. The covenant of 17, however, focuses more upon Abraham's fulfillment of the creation narrative to be fruitful and multiply in the land of Canaan while connecting circumcision to this promise. These passages describe the Lord's covenant with Abraham differently because they originate from different textual traditions. While the priestly tradition is the source of Genesis chapter 17, the covenant passage of Genesis chapter 15 is mainly attributed to the Yahwist. Just as Genesis began with two different creation accounts placed side by side, so Abraham's story features two different covenant passage which belong to two different textual traditions. In other words, the communities who brought these traditions together to create the book of Genesis as we know it today cherished diversity. Even in their sacred text, these people were content to allow different versions of the same narrative to exist side by side, woven into a unified yet diverse masterpiece. Both the priests and the poets are valued equally here, even when they don't agree. Digging a little deeper, we begin to see a pattern in Abraham's narrative called a chiasm. The chiasm is a literary device which is commonly found within the Bible. Usually, the most important thing in the chiasm occupies center place. So let me explain. A chiasm is like a pyramid in its structure. You start at the bottom of the period with idea A, then progress to the next level B, on to the next level C, until you reach the top and center of the structure D. Then as you make your way back down the other side of the pyramid, you encounter something that looks like level C. The next level down looks like level B. Finally, the last step on your way down the pyramid looks and resembles level C, the very first step of the journey. Abraham's life follows this pattern. In chapter 12, Abraham's journey begins as the Lord tells him to go, leave everything he ever knew to pursue a new life. This journey ends in exactly the same way as it starts, with the Lord again telling Abraham to go somewhere, do something, in chapter 22. Chapter 12 ends with Abraham avoiding rivalry by giving up Sarai to an Egyptian king and promptly being expelled from his presence. Something very similar happens towards the end of the chiasm in chapter 20, when Abraham again gives up his wife to another king. In chapters 13 and 14 and 18 and 19, the next level of the chiasm, Abraham rescues his nephew Lot from Sodom. The covenant narratives of chapters 15 and 17 occupy level C of the chiasm, with the Yahweh story about Sarai and Hagar's rivalries taking center stage at the top of the pyramid on level D. 
This structure suggests that the events of chapter 16 are the most important in Abraham's narrative. For the community who are ultimately wove these sources into a unified masterpiece, Hagar's experience of being pursued and loved by God after being scapegoated and expelled from her community in a kind of reverse exodus is the most important story here. The God of this community is a God of love and compassion to all who are being oppressed and scapegoated, regardless of their religion and nationality. Reading on now from verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he and he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here's a great example of how the book of Genesis presents this great picture of unity in diversity. Chapter 17 presents a very different portrait of God to the one we saw in the previous chapter. Although the big take-home message of Genesis chapter 16 was about this God who rescues and cares for the outcast, the God of Genesis chapter 17 is the champion of Abraham's tribe alone. God promises to bless Abraham and his family so long as they bear the tribal mark of circumcision. The Lord says to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, those who are not circumcised will be excised from the people of Israel and lose any share that they may have had in the covenant blessing of Abraham. You may recall that from a mimetic perspective, the blessing of Abraham is the peace and prosperity that Abraham discovers when he leaves behind his life of mimetic rivalry to pursue a life of peace. This is the blessing which Abraham's descendants will enjoy if they continue to walk in Abraham's lifestyle. On the other hand, if any one of Abraham's descendants begins to engage in rivalry with other people, then they will not inherit the blessing promised to Abraham because they have broken their God's covenant with them. The passage here says that they shall be cut off from their people. In other words, they no longer have any claim on the blessing of Abraham and they will not enjoy that blessing which has been promised to their people. 
but what's the big deal about circumcision and what's it got to do with this covenant and this new lifestyle? Put simply, circumcision is a boundary marker which identifies and sets apart Abraham and his tribe from the other peoples of the land. You see, this passage is all about identity. Who are the true children of Abraham? According to this passage, anyone who becomes circumcised. Now, historically, circumcision is not exactly unique to Israel. Other ancient peoples, such as the Egyptians, also practiced circumcision, but this practice was commonly associated with royalty. Kings were circumcised. But here we see, in Genesis chapter 17, the whole nation of Israel is commanded to become circumcised. Scholars have seen this and they have noted this is like a democratization of kingship. As we see later on in this Pentateuch, Moses will tell all the people that God has appointed them to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, this is a royal people. And we've just seen here in this passage, God promises Abraham that kings will come out from him. In other words, Abraham's descendants will be a nation of kings, a royal nation. And perhaps this idea of circumcision is tied in with this idea. You don't have a specific king, but you are all kings. In a similar way, all of Abraham's people are going to bear and reflect this image of God. In other ancient cultures and narratives, the king was the son of God. The king bore the image of the gods. But here in Israel's scripture, we're being told that Abraham and his descendants, they reflect the divine image as they continue God's creative work in the world. So the circumcision of Abraham's tribe may communicate this idea that they are a special tribe, a kingdom of kings, if you like, a royal nation set apart for God. Source criticism also gives us a clue about what's going on here. Remember in chapter 16, we had this beautiful inclusive story of a non-tribal God who pursues the foreign and oppressed outcast. Now in chapter 17, we're being told that this God is a tribal God, a God who cares about Abraham and his descendants. There's important distinctions being made here. And we mentioned earlier that one group of people who are very focused on making distinctions are the priestly circles from which this text originates. The priests were very important in distinguishing the clean from the unclean, the holy from the holy, and they had rituals to make that happen. Here, in circumcision, the priestly writers are putting forth this idea that all of Abraham's descendants must be circumcised to set them apart from the other peoples outside. So in this sense, circumcision acts as a ritual, physical reminder of Israel's special vocation in the world. 
This ritual defines and physically marks Abraham's descendants and reassures the ancient Israelite reader that they, along with the rest of their people, are part of Abraham's story. Sitting in exile in Babylon, the sign of circumcision reminds the Israelites that one day they will experience the blessing of Abraham as they return to fill the land of Canaan and establish themselves as a great nation. Abraham is told that he will be blessed, he will be fruitful, and his descendants will be multiplied, ultimately filling the land of Canaan and completing the creation mandate of Genesis 1. In so doing, Abraham walks with God and is considered the complete human. He is everything humanity was ever meant to be. He is the true humanity who continues God's creative work in the world. This is who Abraham is and the ideal to which his descendants must aspire. Circumcision also reminds the people of Israel of their vocation as the children of God who manifest God's creative action to the world. In a practical sense, this means caring for the world and actively working to support the animals, plants and people living in it. As Genesis 16 teaches us, it also means to liberate the oppressed and help them to find hope and peace. While many of us are not Jewish and have no intention of becoming circumcised, this vision of a new humanity that continues God's creative work in the world calls us all to a new standard of love and peace as we work together to make a better world for everyone to enjoy. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.